Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9 this morning. We'll be looking at uh, verses 18 through 30. And this is uh, the early ministry of Saul who is uh, dramatically converted on the road to Damascus and becomes the Apostle Paul, as we know. But uh, in the book of Acts, he's still referred to as Saul at this point in time. So we'll do the same. But I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 18, which uh, kind of begins at the end of his conversion experience. And then we'll read down through verse 30. So as I read uh, for you from the Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's inspired Word. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those who hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Well, so Saul is uh, miraculously converted on the road to Damascus. The scales fall from his eyes. And I think that's kind of a an outward picture of removing both the physical blindness and the spiritual blindness so that he could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something akin to what John Newton wrote about in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, when he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And Saul now, who was spiritually blind and was struck physically blind by Christ when he first met him on the road, now sees the Lord. 
His, his blindness has been removed from his physical eyes, from his spiritual eyes. So now he comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in verse 20 and repeated again down in verse 22 is that Saul immediately begins to proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, Saul, his very nature, we know he's, he's an activist. He's a zealot. I mean, just look at how he was persecuting the, the Christians. So you take that same personality and you sanctify it and you redirect it. And here's a guy that's going to be zealous and passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that we see in verse 20 that he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And then down in verse 22, he kept increasing in strength, that would be spiritual strength, and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 20, that Jesus is the Christ, verse 22. And it's, it's interesting that uh, when, when the Lord first confronted Saul in that blinding light, and he spoke to Saul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The first question that Saul asked the Lord is, who are you, Lord? He wanted to know who this person was. Well, the Lord made it clear to him. And it's interesting that he began to preach who Jesus was. He is the Son of God and He is the Christ. So his, his initial interest was in knowing who Jesus was. A bit of theology, if you, if, if you don't mind. Uh, knowledge about who this person was that was confronting him in this blinding light on the road to Damascus. Now later on, when, when uh, Paul shares his testimony in Acts 22, he tells us then that he actually asked a second question that's not recorded here in Acts 9. He also asked the Lord, what shall I do? He wanted to know who he was, and he also wanted to know what he must do. And I think what we see in this is the importance of both knowledge and action to be a balanced Christian. If all we're doing is just growing in knowledge and theology and things like that, but we don't have action to our faith, then faith without works is dead. And it's, it's a defect of faith. But if you have all action and no knowledge, well then you can, you can become a misguided zealot. But it's interesting that Saul wanted to know both. Who are you and what must I do in light of who you are? And so what we see is that once he is converted, he immediately begins to do what he was told he would need to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel, but he does it in the light of who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. In verse 20, when he uh, immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues there in Damascus, saying that he is the Son of God, that reference to Son of God had a very rich heritage in the Old Testament. We know that uh, there are several different ways you can understand the Son of God designation. One of those is that on occasion it actually referred to the nation of Israel. God referred to Israel as His Son. Remember in Exodus 4.22, 
Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then later in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And they're referring to God calling Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. What's really interesting about that is that in Matthew 2.15, Matthew takes that Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 passage, out of Egypt I called my son, and he says it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Christ now is becoming, if you will, a new Israel, a new covenant Israel, who now, in effect, uh, becomes all that Israel failed to be, and now Christ fulfills it. And Matthew does a wonderful job of really in the early chapters of his book bringing the parallels between Israel and Jesus. Israel was uh, in the wilderness for, and tempted for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted. And you can just carry the parallel on. It's kind of an answer. But it was used for the nation of Israel. Secondly, the designation Son of God was also a title given to the anointed King of Israel. When God made His covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, He said of David's seed who would sit on the throne, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So the kings of Judah, of Israel... Uh, sometimes could be referred to as the Son of God in a very generic sense, but at least as a title. But then, since the Davidic covenant ultimately pointed forward to the coming Messiah, the promised Davidic messianic king was primarily called the Son. Again, the Second Samuel 7.14 passage, but look at Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son. And this is a messianic prophecy in Psalm 2. A prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the messianic king, the Davidic king, above all else, had the title of son of God, according to Psalm 2. But what made this such a... Uh, a point of debate and controversy was that the Jews in the first century, if anybody referred to God as their father, they said that was blasphemy. It was okay to say that God is our father as the nation of Israel, as they thought. But for any man, any individual, to say that God is my father, then that was making them equal to God. And that was blasphemy. That's exactly what's happening in John chapter 5, verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, Jesus, because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So the title Son of God was given to the nation of Israel, fulfilled in Christ ultimately, refers to the Messianic Davidic King, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and is also a title of deity. One who is equal with God. God the Son. Which again is Jesus Christ. So when, when Saul was preaching in verse 20. That Jesus is the Son of God. He probably was developing and explaining all of these ideas. And obviously it was something that was... Uh, uh, something he did regularly, something he did passionately, but he did it immediately. 
he started going into the synagogues preaching that the Messiah has come, that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, So in verse 22, in addition to Jesus being the Son of God, he also was confounding the Jews in verse 22 in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now when you come to the word Christ, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, and it means the anointed one. So in verse 22, when Saul is proving that Jesus is the Christ, he's proving to these Jews from the Scriptures that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah, that He is the Anointed One, that He fulfills all the prophecies in the Old Testament of their coming future Davidic King. He is the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we really mean Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. That's what that name means. Jesus Messiah. Jesus Christ. So Saul was very zealous also in proclaiming this wonderful truth to the people. And notice uh, in verse 22 it says he was confounding them. He was confounding them because obviously for them to accept Jesus as their Messiah, they had to get over this incredible mindset, this view that they had of their Messiah. That when their Messiah would come, He would come as a conquering king. He would come to overthrow the Romans. That He would elevate Israel above all the nations of the earth. And Jesus didn't look anything like that. So he was confounding them by taking them, no doubt, to passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 and showing them that the coming Messiah had to suffer. He had to offer Himself as an atonement for our sins. And and that was just something they, they had never heard of before. It was in their Bibles, but they didn't understand it. They had those spiritual blinders on. So he was confounding them and they were probably at times having those brain cramps like you get when you eat too much ice cream. You know, where you're just, your head just kind of freezes up and, and, and Saul is preaching to them that this crucified, resurrected Savior is your Messiah. And it just, it confounded them. And he also says in verse 22 that he was proving to them. He was taking them to the Word of God taking them to the Scriptures. Again, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that shows how the Messiah must die and suffer to pay the penalty for our sins. This word for proving in verse 22 is the idea of putting the pieces of things together, like in a a jigsaw puzzle, or the threads of a tapestry where you put it all together to put a beautiful picture out in front of someone's gaze. So what Paul is doing by proving, he's taking all these different passages from the Old Testament that prove the deity of Christ, that prove that the Messiah would suffer for our sins, and he he wove it all together in this beautiful tapestry. He put the picture of the jigsaw puzzle before them, taking all these verses and combining them so they could see. He was proving to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And then in verse 23, if you look, it says, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted to do away with Him. 
Now, I want to take you to, uh, at this point, to just fill in the gaps. If you go to Galatians chapter 1, you'll find that Paul, Saul, makes a trip into Arabia at some point in time here. We read in Galatians 1, where Paul writes, When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. In other words, that's the Damascus Road conversion experience. He says, I did not immediately console flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Well, where is Arabia? And when did Saul go to Arabia? Uh, The Spirit of God didn't lead Luke to record that in Acts chapter 9, but we do have it mentioned in Galatians chapter 1. This is a map of of, uh, what Arabia would have looked like probably in the first century. It actually goes up a little bit higher and includes Damascus, as we'll find out in just a few moments. But uh, Paul in Galatians 4 actually says that Mount Sinai was in Arabia. Now, some people speculate that when he went to Arabia, as he indicates in Galatians 1, he went all the way down to Mount Sinai and kind of had a Moses experience, you know, at the burning bush, and Elijah experience after he slayed all the prophets on on Mount Carmel. But that's totally speculation. The Bible gives us no indication of what he did or actually where he went when he went to Arabia. Arabia is a very, very large area. He could have stayed up in the northern part. He may not have traveled. We just don't know. But there's lots of different theories about uh, where he might have gone and this, that, and the other. But why did he go to Arabia? Well, again, we're not really told, but I would imagine that he went, and wherever he went in Arabia... He was studying the Scriptures. He was communing with Christ. He may have received many of His revelations that He talked about in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, during that time period. And I have no doubt at all that He continued to preach Christ to the Jewish dispersion in that area as well as to Gentiles. Probably during this period, I would guess that maybe the Lord Jesus uh, helped Saul to understand the mystery of Christ that uh, Paul talks about on several occasions, where Gentiles are now receiving uh, the blessings with Israel, that they become one in the body of Christ. So, But he, he spent time in Arabia. And uh, when did he go to Arabia? Uh, well, if you look back in Acts chapter 9, notice in verse 19, right after he's converted, it says, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So he starts out with the disciples in Damascus, and then probably he goes to Arabia. And then after however long he was in Arabia, he comes back, and then look in verse 23 of Acts 9, when many days had elapsed, the Jews there in in Damascus formed a plot to try to kill him. So it probably occurred in this time period. Um, So, basically, it took place between verse 19 and verse 23. And the many days had elapsed in verse 23 includes this time period in Arabia as I uh, understand this. 
It's a very interesting time uh, in Arabia. Again, the scriptures are silent. But you know in 2 Corinthians 11, when, when uh, Paul talks about all the suffering that he endured for the name of Christ, five times he said he, re- he received the Jewish 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with rods. Some of that could have happened during his time in Arabia. It's not mentioned anywhere in his three missionary journeys. Uh, but again, we don't, we don't know for sure what happened. Then if you look down at verse uh, 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. The disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So, when he comes back from Arabia, he starts preaching again in Damascus. The Jews now are being all riled up because they're not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. So they form a plot to do away with him and kill him. You know, again, I think it just reinforces that a faithful witness of the gospel, you can expect opposition. Uh, He certainly had a lot of it. But we find that not only was it the Jews trying to put him to death, but in 2 Corinthians 11, Saul actually said that the government of Damascus was joining forces with the Jews to put him to death. 2 Corinthians 11.32, Paul writes, In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king, that would be the king of Arabia, because at this time Damascus was included in Arabia, They were guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and so escaped his hands. So here he mentions what Luke mentions of the Jews forming the plot. Apparently they were in cahoots with the the civil rulers, the Gentiles in Damascus. And government and religion formed a union and joined hands to do away with Saul. I think it's always a a danger whenever corrupt religion is able to manipulate the government to persecute Christians, but that's exactly what was going on in this particular case. His disciples, however, those who Paul was training, took him by night, lowered him down in a hole in the wall in a large basket, and he escaped. So... You can almost say that at this point of his life, Saul was a basket case. Not mentally, but physically. He was literally a, a basket case. So we see now that uh, he escapes from Damascus, and he's now, for the first time, going to head down to Jerusalem. We find that uh, this is uh, three years later, he says in Galatians 1.18, I went up to Jerusalem. And part of his argument in Galatians 1 is that right when he was converted, he did not consult with flesh and blood. He didn't run down to Jerusalem talk with Peter and all the other apostles to, to get the Gospel from them. No, no. Christ gave him His Gospel. Christ revealed to Saul directly the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he makes a very emphatic point in Galatians 1 that he did not consult with flesh and blood. So this is at least three years after his conversion that he meets the apostles for the very first time. 
Um, this three-year uh, period, again, probably, some say it's three years after he came back from Arabia. Others say it's three years from his conversion to his escape in the basket. So however you count the years, it's been at least three years before he now returns back to Jerusalem. Remember, he was sent out from Jerusalem to go persecute and arrest the Christians and bring them back. He hadn't been back there for over three years. So we read in verse uh, 26 and 27 that when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. So we have Barnabas to the rescue. So Saul comes back. He's, he's been away for three years. Um, he comes back into the city. He starts mingling with the believers there. And uh, all they remember is what this guy was like before he was converted. He was a man of violence. He hated them. He was a threat. And they were understandably very suspicious of Saul. What's he doing here? Is it a trick? Is he like a a, a Trojan horse tactic to penetrate into the church so he could find out where the leaders are and where they're staying and and the other ones and, and, and arrest us all? And so they were naturally very suspicious. You know, you know what the number one nation in the world is for persecuting Christians? It's North Korea. Imagine if you're a Christian in an underground church in North Korea who persecutes Christians more than anybody else and you hear a knock at the door and you open the door and it's Kim Jong-un. And he says, I just want you to know I'm a Christian. I'm here to worship with you. What do you think the Christians in that House would do. Give them maybe two seconds, they're gone. They're scattered. Because you're letting this guy, a known terrorist, a known person that has a history of hating Christians, and you can understand why the, the early Christians were so suspicious of, the, of, of Saul. Uh, Kim Jong-un, just for your information, has about fifty to 70,000 Christians in these terrible labor camps as political prisoners, or he'll just kill them on the spot. And I know our President Trump is going to be meeting with him uh, soon, and I can only hope and pray that uh, the influence of, of America and our President on him would help to loosen up and give his people more religious liberty and freedom. I don't know if that would ever happen, but... Um, you can still understand why these people would have been, these Christians in Jerusalem would have been scared of Saul. But we have Barnabas to the rescue. Thank God for Barnabas. Uh, remember we first met Barnabas in uh, chapter 4, where he's a very gracious and generous man. He gives a plot of land to be sold, and all the proceeds were brought to the apostles to help the poor. In chapter 4, verse 36, he's actually 
it says that his name translated means sons of son of encouragement. And he definitely was a son of encouragement. In chapter 11, we'll hear of him again uh, when he uh, is sent out by the apostles in Jerusalem to go up to Antioch to check out all these stories about Gentiles coming to faith. And it says that there he was a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is Barnabas. This is the man that uh, now we see in verse 27. And notice what he does. When everybody else would have stayed clear of Saul like a leper or a man who had the plague, Barnabas came up and took hold of him. He took hold of him in verse 27, brought him to the apostles, introduced him to the apostles, endorsed him before the apostles. And you just find what a a tremendous blessing he was to Saul. He vouched for Saul before the apostles, told him that he had seen the Lord. He had heard the Lord. That he had preached boldly the Gospel in, in Damascus. He recommended him. He commended him. And so that Barnabas came along and did what no one else uh, was able to do at that point. And without that, Saul's time in Jerusalem may have been very, very difficult. We find that uh, he meets with the apostles uh, we're told that uh, as, uh, he's, as Barnabas brings him to the apostles in verse 27, and we do find out, uh, and, and let me say, by the way, before I get into that, that uh, the word Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, is actually, that word encouragement is the same word that's translated helper for the Holy Spirit in John 14. And in John 15 and 16, it's the very same Greek word. So that Barnabas is the son of encouragement, but that's exactly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because that word, encouragement, is translated paraclete. That's the actually, well, that's actually the Greek word, paraclete. But it means a helper, a comforter, a strengthener, and an advocate. And that's what Barnabas was to Saul. He was a helper. He was a comforter, a strengthener, and an advocate. Just as the Holy Spirit is to us, so Barnabas was to Saul. And that's why I think it's interesting that in Acts chapter 11, he's a man full of the Spirit. Because that's what people do who are full of the, of the Holy Spirit. They are, they are helpers. They're comforters. They're strengtheners. They're advocates. They're encouragers of those who need encouragement. So Barnabas is a, is a great example. So he introduced him to the apostles. And actually at this time, he only meets with Peter. The other apostles probably were out ministering outside of the city. And he also met with James, not the apostle James, but the Lord's brother James in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And probably at that time, Peter could give Saul additional details about the life and ministry of Jesus on earth. So they spent about 15 days together in verse 18. So Saul was probably soaking up a lot of the information that was not given to him directly by revelation from Jesus. So Peter and James, the Lord's half-brother, no doubt gave a lot of insight to Saul about Jesus and his life. 
verse 28 and 29, Saul now moves about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And we just find again that uh, in verse 29 that he's talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. These are the very ones that came up against Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, you remember? Put Stephen to death. They launched all that. Now Saul is kind of taking Stephen's place and he's ministering to these same Hellenistic Jews and they began to try to put him to death as well. But he escapes in verse 29 and 30. Verse 30, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Now what's interesting at this time, Saul didn't want to leave Jerusalem. And the reason why we know that is because, again, when Paul tells about these events in Acts 22 in his testimony, he said that when he came back to Jerusalem, he was in the temple one day and he fell into a trance. And the Lord Jesus told him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. That's when this plot is taking place in verse 29. And and. Saul, in this trance, responds to Jesus. And he says, but Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I also was standing by approving and watching for the coats of those who were slaying him. But Jesus says, go, for I will send you away to the Gentile. So he didn't really want to leave. At this point, he was ready to stake himself into the ground in Jerusalem, preach the gospel and just endure whatever. But Jesus said, no, obviously he has more in store for Saul. You need to leave. But Saul had that kind of passion. I think he would have been one of the guys that died in the Alamo had he had he been in Texas uh, during that battle. He would not have left. He would have held his ground there to the very end. He would have died for Christ right then and there in Jerusalem. But Jesus knew he had other longer plans and three, at least three, probably four missionary journeys ahead of Saul. So he tells him to flee and leave. And so what we find out is that the disciples came and they took him from Jerusalem. They took him first to Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. That's kind of the the uh, headquarters of the Roman government in Judea. That's where Pilate would have spent most of his time there in Caesarea, except the times he came to Jerusalem. But then from Caesarea, they sent him all the way back up to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown. Remember, that's where he was born, in Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was one of the uh, three leading academic centers of the first century. It'd be like a Princeton today or a Harvard um, there were schools there devoted to philosophy and rhetoric and law. And uh, so he, they took him back home. Uh, how long did he stay there? You know, we normally have this idea that, uh, okay, he goes back to Tarsus, and then he goes right to Antioch. And then from Antioch, the Spirit of God said to the church, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have appointed them to do. And then he suddenly launches into his three missionary journeys. Scholars say Saul spent probably eight to ten years in Tarsus. And he spent another at least one full year in Antioch before they come down to Jerusalem with a gift for the poor, 
Then they go back up to Antioch and then he starts his missionary journeys. So from Damascus, when he's converted, to the time that he begins his missionary journeys, we're looking at anywhere from 12 to 15 years. And this is mostly silent period for Saul. We don't know anything of what he did in Tarsus. Now we can guess, he probably went out and preached some. He studied some. He was still faithful in, in growing and communing and growing in maturity. But uh, it's silent. We don't know. A long period of time, 12 to 15 years before he's launched on his first missionary journey. I find that really quite remarkable in, in many ways that God just put him on the sidelines, almost, it seems like. Well, let me wrap up this passage. There's several things I want to emphasize again. The first one is uh, you have an opportunity this morning to be a Barnabas to someone. I think Barnabas is such an interesting individual, full of the Spirit, a good man, full of faith. A son of encouragement. A man who was given to encourage others. I think what Barnabas would do when he walked into his church meetings, of course, he loves all the brethren. He loves all the people in the church. He would have walked in probably when he went to church and he would have greeted them and loved them. But I think he probably always had an eye for the person sitting off by themselves. I think when Barnabas walked in, although he he loved everybody, His heart was to encourage. His heart was to comfort. His heart was to introduce. His heart was to go up to the ones that most everyone else was shying away from. He had a heart for the ones that no one was talking to. That people were just standing back. Or maybe they're just so involved in fellowshipping with the other brethren that they overlook this person by themselves. Or this person that's a visitor. Or this person that's no one's talking with. And they're just sitting there on the in the pew by themselves. And I think Barnabas would have zoomed in on that person. Because that's his heart. His heart is to go over and befriend and and introduce the one who no one knows to those who maybe are in leadership or other uh, believers within the church. You have an opportunity to be a Barnabas. That you can be an encouragement to someone else. And I would say that when you come into this church on Sunday mornings, we love the brethren. We certainly want to fellowship. We have a lot to be to catch up on. Keep an eye to the one that seems like people are aloof from. Have a heart to go and draw near to them and introduce yourself to them and show them the love of Christ. See, because Barnabas was full of the Spirit, that's what the Spirit of God does. The paraclete. He's our helper. He's our strengthener. He's our encourager. He's our sustainer. And that's what we should be to other people. We should pray for opportunities that we can just go and be a friend. And particularly when people come to this church and they're here for the first time, they need people to go up and befriend them, introduce them, love them. That was Barnabas. He was a peacemaker where there was a bit of tension between the Jews who remembered who Saul was and Saul who's now coming into their fellowship and they don't trust him and they remember all the evil things he did to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet Barnabas was a one who could be a peacemaker 
and He could resolve the differences and help them to look at Him in a better light. That was the heart of a Barnabas. And praise God, we have Barnabases in this church. But we can always use more. And may God give us more in this church. And I just challenge you that you can be a Barnabas as well. When we're filled with the Spirit, we think of other people first. We put them first. And we especially have a heart to reach out to those who are neglected or who are alone or who need to be brought into the fellowship. The second thing I want to emphasize is just waiting on God's timing. This is one of the most difficult things that I think we have to do. But um, let me get caught up on my little outline here. And I'll bring you back to this uh, map where uh, Saul uh, spent at least 15 days with the apostles in Jerusalem, maybe longer, but then immediately he was rushed away because of the death plot against him, taken to Caesarea, went up to Tarsus for 8 to 10 years. And we don't know anything about what he's doing in Tarsus for that time period. And then he goes to Antioch for at least a year, and we know that he's strengthening, he's ministering within the church, but we don't know anything beyond that. So again, as I indicated a while ago, it's probably from his conversion to the time that God and the Spirit of God launches him on his God-ordained ministry of those uh, missionary journeys, you've got 12 to 15 years. And I'm wondering what's going on in Saul's mind. He has this conversion experience. Christ has revealed through Ananias to him that he's a chosen vessel and, and that he's going to send him away to minister to, the, to Israel and to the kings and to Gentiles and show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And, and, he's, and he's in Tarsus for eight to ten years and he's probably just wondering, okay, Lord, I'm ready. And he's no doubt ministering within the church some, but Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to be launched out. You know, these, these, this great uh, ministry that, I, that, that you've revealed to me that you're going to send me on, but it's not happening yet. God, what are you doing with me? I'm just sitting here. I feel like I'm on the sidelines. Things aren't moving the way they are. I don't understand why, why things aren't really, you know, picking up speed. What are you doing in my life, oh God? Why am I here for such a long period when, I'm, when I, I know I'm called to be a missionary? Why are things seemingly so silent? Why after such a powerful, miraculous conversion experience, I just feel like I'm just here locked into this one little ministry? Lord, what are You doing in my life? I think sometimes we can feel that way. I think sometimes we can get frustrated with the pace that things are developing within our life. I think sometimes we can get discouraged and frustrated that things seem to move so slow. Maybe it's an illness or a sickness. And you just think you ought to be doing better by now, but things are moving slow. Maybe it's areas in your life. Maybe it's in your work and or other goals that you have in your life or, or things that you're trying to achieve and it just seems like you're making no or little or no progress at all. It can try our patience, our trust, our contentment. 
But that's exactly what God is doing, is building that in us. The Scriptures would tell us that the times when we have to wait on God, when things are moving way too slow for us, when things are not developing like I want them to develop, and we're just stuck there in that place, and we we can't push the, the ball forward on the field, we're just stuck there in a timeout period, that that's when God sometimes does His most important work. When we are learning to wait on Him. To trust Him. To know that He is in control. That He is the sovereign God. And the Scriptures would encourage us that if you learn to wait upon the Lord and trust Him, that you'll be blessed in the end. For though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And so what I think during that idle time, if you will, that Saul was faithful in the little things, I think the long years in Tarsus and then the the other year or two in, in Antioch were times when Saul, waiting for the big ministry to come, waiting for the big blessings to come, was faithful in the little things. He was faithful in studying the Scriptures. He was faithful in ministering within that one little church or however many little churches there were in Tarsus and later in Antioch. But he was faithful to study, to preach, to teach. And even though from the point of view of revelation, he's in the shadows and he's out of the light, yet he learned faithfulness in little things. He learned to wait upon God and ultimately receive the blessing from that grace extended to him. So the next time you grow impatient with God, the next time you begin to question why things are not moving faster in your life, the next time you're tempted to be discontent with your circumstances, oh God, why haven't you changed these? Recognize that God is calling you at that point to wait upon Him, to trust in Him, to be faithful in the little things of life. And it's at that time that God will deepen you He will strengthen you. He will ripen you on the vine for whatever work He has awaiting for you. Waiting times are ripening times in the hands of God. The last thing I want to uh, close with is just the importance that we saw all the way back up in 20. Verse 20. That when Saul was converted he immediately began to proclaim Christ. He immediately began to share the Gospel. And the point that I want to make from this is that it's so important that whenever we're in a new environment or we take on a new job or we're around new people, that we begin to show our colors at the very beginning, the very outset. That we begin to raise the flag of our faith in Jesus Christ in one way or another. And immediately we find that Paul began to proclaim Christ 
both in Damascus and also in Jerusalem when he showed up there. He immediately began to let everybody know that he was a follower of Jesus Christ now. He began to let everybody know that he had put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save him from his sins. And he did that immediately. And I think what we see that in Scriptures, there's really no such thing, or there shouldn't be, a silent Christian. Now I understand it can be difficult, given our circumstances, it can be difficult to identify ourselves as followers of Christ. Sometimes within our family, we have hostile members Uh, Sometimes among our friends, we have the fear of rejection. Sometimes we have a a job in a hostile government that you have to be very, very careful. But even in little ways where we just say, you know, I went to church on Sunday. Uh, Any ways that we can let our faith be made known to others around us so that they know that we're a Christian in one way or another. I mean, you have to stand on your desk at work and, and, and proclaim like John the Baptist you know, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of God or anything like that. But there's ways where we can show that we're not ashamed of the Lord. That we're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the, the new birth does within us. It gives us a voice. If a baby is born and that baby does not cry, what's, don't you know that something's wrong with that little baby? Because it's natural that when the birth occurs, there'll be a cry. And when the doctor picks up the little baby by his, his, his ankles and swats him on the little behind and you hear that, that cry, you know his lungs are clear and he's, he's healthy, he's alive. It's the same thing with those who experience the new birth. There needs to be an audible, verbal witness to our faith in Jesus Christ in some form or some way. Y'all remember this picture? It's an iconic photograph taken by Joe Rosenthal on February the 23rd, 1945, which depicts the six United States Marines raising the United States flag atop Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima. This is where the American troops on their way to Japan uh, had to stop and conquer this island that the Japanese control at this point in time. And this is an iconic picture because when they reached the top of the mountain of this island, these guys raised this flag after the battle and to indicate that that island now belonged to a new owner. That that island now was under the authority of the United States. And that flag was a visible public proclamation that ownership of that island had now changed hands. Japan no longer was the owner and the controller and the authority. Now it's the United States of America. And I think what we need to do in our life is to always be quick to raise the flag. The flag of our faith in Christ, if you will. The flag that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The flag that my life, which was used to be under the control and dominion of of an enemy, is now under the control and dominion of my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. That we need to be quick to raise the flag of our faith. So you get a new job and you walk in there and you get down at your desk, you need to put a Bible verse up on your desk. Or something that would begin to let people know when they come by that this is a person that's a Christian. 
And there's many different ways. I'm not about to, 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 the Spirit of God can lead you certainly. But this is what Christ Himself wants of us. We read in Matthew 5 where Jesus said to His disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus wants for your life and my life. To raise the flag, the banner of Jesus Christ, that He is my Savior and He is my Lord. To be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. To let our light shine. That's what Jesus wants for you as a follower of Christ. In Matthew 10, He also goes on to say even more strongly, Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, I will also confess him before My Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny him before My Father who is in heaven. For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Strong words, aren't they? But you see the heart of Christ. He doesn't want us to, He doesn't want to save us that we put our light under the bushel basket. He wants to save us that we shine forth the light of Christ in a world of darkness that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus. And that's exactly what Saul did. Immediately, he began to proclaim Christ. Immediately, he began to, to prove that he was the Son of God and that he was their Messiah. And may the Spirit of God give us that grace. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And may the Spirit of God fill us as He filled Saul, that we might uh, take advantage of the opportunities to let other people know that we are followers of Christ. To raise the flag of faith in the Lord Jesus, that people can know that my life is no longer under the control of the world or Satan, but it's under the control of my Savior. So be a Barnabas. Learn to wait upon the Lord in those difficult times of your life. And may God give us the grace to early and quickly raise the flag of faith in Christ. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You for uh, inspiring Luke to write this challenging passage for us in the book of Acts. And may it encourage us to be like a Barnabas to those who, who need a word of encouragement. To learn to trust You when life seems to be at a turtle pace, slow crawl. And we're frustrated with the speed of which things are happening. But to know that these are some of the times that You do Your greatest work. Lord, give us the faith and trust to wait upon You in those times. And then like Saul, Lord, that we would be quick to raise the flag and identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ 
with whoever were around uh, that you might give us opportunities to bear witness for our Savior. So in all these areas, Lord, we are weak and we need your strength. So help us that Christ would be glorified in our lives. For we ask it in his name. Amen.